would invite you to take the Lord's Word and turn in it with me back to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to move forward a bit, having two weeks ago looked at the first 16 verses of chapter 17. Today we're going to consider the final six verses of chapter 18. This is quite a time in the history of Israel. It is around the turn of the ninth century B.C., and she is under the leadership of one of her worst kings, Ahab, who is one who has worshipped Baal, mainly through the influence of his wife, who was the daughter of Ethbaal, who had reigned as a Sidonian king at one time, and she had brought this idolatry into Israel with her. And this passage that we're going to consider today, I would categorize much like I categorized the introduction of Paul to his letter to the church at Ephesus last week as we looked at that greeting. It's one of those smaller passages that we tend to just sort of scoot right past, not thinking that there's much there, that there's drama in other places that is of greater proportions. But this is very significant because herein we see the ultimate promise kept and the favor of God as it extends to all. There's a very specific way in which that's seen in these concluding verses of 1 Kings chapter 18. But let's review briefly. We've seen Elijah as he's come onto the scene, one who had to escape because after all, Jezebel was one who had massacred the prophets of the Lord. The Lord protects him by sending him to a place... Of all places, Zarephath, way out of the way, right in the heart of Baal country. And he approaches a widow there and her son, and they're literally about to have their last supper. And God is going to perform a miracle through Elijah. But Elijah has the gall to say, bring a cake to me first. Can you imagine how that went down? How rude that might have seemed to her at first. But then God uses Elijah in a mighty way to cause daily bread and daily oil, as it were, and the water jars to be full during the time of drought with those provisions that this one who is slated to receive the kindness of God will receive and will live with her son off of them. She went away and accordingly believed the word of God. Now, there's in the next passage the revival of this widow's son. She dies, and he's going to bring her back to life. Elijah is, and in so doing, foreshadow great accounts of the New Testament. Uh, like we read in Mark 5, for example, of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead or the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, or, or even Lazarus himself in John chapter 11. All, of course, pointing to Christ as the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who will be raised from the dead and will raise all of those who are his from the dead at the last and assign to them new bodies. Then he has contact again as we begin the 18th chapter with Ahab, but he has to escape again because of this cruel Jezebel. He spends time in a cave himself, and we note early on there in the opening verses of 1 Kings 18 that there was a man named Obadiah, not the minor prophet, but a God-fearing man on the staff of Ahab who had helped 
the prophets of the Lord escape and spend times out of the way in safety, 50 of them in a cave, precisely verse 4 says in 1 Kings 18. And Obadiah is the one who actually finds Elijah as he is out and about. There had been an APB, as it were, out on him. Verse 10 seems to indicate uh, men had gone hither and thither, nations and kingdoms. They had not found him, and they'd sworn an oath that they wouldn't find him. They were so unsure that he would not turn up. They were so unsure that they would find him, but he does emerge, and he winds up back before Ahab. Ahab calls him a troublemaker, and Elijah retorts, Oh no, you and your fathers are actually the ones who have brought the trouble, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a sacrifice off, if I can use that term. You know how we have chili cook-offs? Let's decide who the real God is, and after all, you'll remember... That's the overarching purpose here. God wants to cause Himself to emerge as the God above all other gods. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. There are 400 prophets of a Canaanite goddess known as Asherah. And they come and they do their thing and call out to their gods. But verse 29 informs us there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then there is... a burnt offering, a sacrifice on the wood and stone with water surrounding it. Again, during the time of drought, God proves that He can, not only because there are springs there and the Mediterranean Sea is not too far off, but He can provide water so that when His consuming fire comes and it's all dried up, there is no question but that He is God. And that is what happens. Elijah prays, and a consuming fire falls from heaven. The burnt sacrifice is consumed. And all the people saw it, and they fell on their faces, and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then all of those prophets of Baal are rounded up and taken to the brook of Kishon, and capital punishment is administered. That's the big story, is it not? I mean, this is what really gets the play when we look and study this part of God's Word and this portion of Israel's history. But then there is this. Verse 41 of 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go ahead, go again. Uh, Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing upon the preaching of it. Lord, how appropriate of a tone has been set as we have sung and read your word and all of the themes that have pervaded the hymns and your scriptures to prepare us to 
receive your word. We thank you for the truths that are before us, and we ask that you would cause them to come alive to us, that we may be obedient, that we may not merely hear, but that we may act upon them. Thank you for what is here. Thank you for allowing us to see it. We ask that you would press now your truth deep within our hearts for Jesus' sake, in whose name we do ask it. Amen. My father, as I think I've shared with most, if not all of you, is a graduate of Louisiana State University. He was a student there in the late 50s when they actually won a football national championship. And one of dad's favorite stories is to tell about the time when he attended a game during that championship season. He and my mother were living in Baton Rouge at the time. That's where my sister was born. And my dad's sister and her husband came down to visit from Mississippi. And my uncle had attended the University of Mississippi. LSU was playing Ole Miss. And dad got them tickets. My dad and my uncle went to the game. And they sat in one of the end zones right behind the goalpost. And my now late uncle, uh, being a, a fairly particular guy, complained about those tickets. He said, oh, come on, Pete, you could have gotten better tickets than this. Why'd you have to get us right here behind the goalpost and so on and so forth? LSU won the game 17 to nothing, two touchdowns and a field goal. And all the scoring took place right there as Ole Miss defended that end zone or tried to defend the end zone that they were sitting behind. It was a victory, but a sweet one for one on the side of the victor and one much to the chagrin and pain and frustration of the opponent. Now, I tell you that to set the stage here. 1 Kings 18, 41 through 46 is kind of an end zone passage. There's a lot that's happened on the field up to here, but those things have not been ends. They've been means to a greater end, and all the scoring really takes place right here. We like to think of our God as the God who conquers His enemies on battlefields through His faithful warriors. And He sets up kings and deposes them and brings down idols and works miracles and all those things. But the greatest thing that our God does is be faithful to the simplest yet most profound promises that He's ever made. And here we have our technical term from two weeks ago that Mike reiterated in Sunday school in Inclusio in what we know to be 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. The chapter closes, verse 45. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. The promise in all of this that hangs over it all is the stoppage of rain to prove that He is God over against a so-called Canaanite storm god, Baal. But here it comes again. That's, that's what the people of God, after they've had their eyes reopened to God being the only true and living God, that's what they're looking for, and here it is. And in that we see His faithfulness, but not only so, how it extends out, how it dares to present itself on great appeal before those who seem to continue to just oppose 
and despise God. Oh, the prophets of Baal have fallen, but we still have a Baal-worshipping king. We still have, no doubt, smatterings of it here and there. It hasn't been rid. The land has not of it, though this stark and sobering event has happened. But what we really need to see here, the points on the board are the rain again. Heavy rain. And how it is that the God who promised is faithful to keeping that promise and showing His favor to all manner of sinners. In a sense, this is sort of an inset, if you will, a microcosmic picture. Uh, We have a a, a small view or example of, of a larger promise of God that began all the way back in Genesis. Do you remember when sin entered the created order? God with immediacy moved and He speaks to the servant and he ma- the serpent and He makes it clear uh, that there will be enmity between Him and the seed of the woman. That is hatred. That is conflict. That is irreconcilability. And yet He says, right there in that first promise, though the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman ultimately is going to crush the head of the serpent. There it is. There's the stoppage of rain. And all throughout redemptive history, all the way up to Jesus, what do we have? We have the ball moving down the field. We have God doing His thing. All kinds of struggles upon the lines of scrimmage. We have fumbles. We have broken bones. We have concussions. We have turnovers. But Jesus comes ultimately and scores, you see, as the One who ushers in the fulfillment of that promise and declares that it is finished. And even now... With the victory won, we're anticipating the fullness of it. And we we look for that. We know that through all of the pains and groans and griefs and fears, God is doing something. What's He doing? He's being faithful to that first promise. It's all wrong. And I'm going to make it right. I'm going to bring victory on the field of time. And I am going to prove myself faithful and I am going to offer my great grace to any and all who will receive it. And that's the good news. That's what God is doing and that is what we need to stay focused upon, I believe, as we serve Him primarily. He's a promise-keeping God whose grandest intent is to keep that promise that is issued in the covenant of grace and in so doing, make an appeal to those who are His enemies because of their sin. And that is what makes grace so amazing. He's the ultimate and the perfect promise keeper. Now, the prophet, meanwhile, is on about prophetic business. He's doing his thing, if you will. He's faithful to his God by his God's grace. He has mediatorial work to be done here, and we've just read of it. If you were outlining these six verses, there would be two basic themes. One coming in verses 41 through 45a, and the last just in verse 45b and 46. So it's a little bit unbalanced, but nevertheless, that's the way the proper divide, I believe, in terms of the content comes. In verses 41 through 45a, we have the prophet's petition for the promise of God to come true. 
And in verses 45b and 46, we have the prophet's pursuit of the appeal of God to be answered. And that's going to be, if you will, kind of a fifth point. But I want to look at four points, the main points of this message, under the rubric of the petition of the prophet for the promise of God to come true. It's interesting that we actually don't have any word for prayer in this section of 1 Kings 18. But most scholars are agreed that by virtue of the posture that Elijah assumes here, that it is prayer in which he is engaged. Very comparable, of course, to what he says in verses 36 and 37. He cries out in verse 37 with the people before him and the sacrifice there, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 98 says that prayer is an offering up unto God for our desires for things agreeable to His will. Well, if if that doesn't fit that definition in verses 36 through 38, I don't know what would. This is clearly prayer here. That's why we're looking at this as uh, petitions. And you'll notice in our passage proper that there is a contrast as Elijah is fulfilling his prophetic responsibilities. They come at the instruction of Elijah to the king. It looks as though the king is just sort of sloughing off, but this is all per the will of God, so as to set him apart from Elijah and show the distinction. Elijah is waxing active while the king is idling inactive. Elijah is praying, the king is eating. Elijah is running and the king is riding. So you can see who's really doing the work here. God is bringing about the results of Elijah's heavy lifting per his will. That is, God's desires from all eternity past. And there's this, this difference here that we see between them, but yet it is all in accord with God's prescription. First thing, let's look then at the petition of Elijah and its expression of need. The petition of Elijah and its expression of need. Elijah is so confident that God is going to fulfill his promise that he gives instruction to Ahab to rise and to eat and to drink because an abundance of rain is coming. There's not going to be a problem. God's going to come through. So you just go ahead and eat, king. Meanwhile, he goes back to the top of Carmel, and there he bows down on the ground and puts his face between his knees. Now, he's bowed to the ground, and he has his face down between his knees. So he's almost halfway through a somersault. That's the position there of prayer. He's all the way down there. And in so doing, he is expressing, I submit to you, a great need that he and indeed those on whose behalf he petitions have. And that is, they need the power of God and they must remain connected to God in order to invoke that power by the direct means that God has prescribed. And what is that? It's this wondrous privilege that we have known as prayer. We see Elijah as a kind of superhero, if you will, the one who has done mighty things and has done it with great courage. But it's at times uh, like this instance in which he kneels there on Carmel that we see that ultimately the power behind it is the Lord. We're seeing the helpless side of Elijah. We're seeing him going to the source and thereby indicating that unless God does this, because He's the only one who can, it's not going to happen. And yet He's sure that God will be faithful, and so He takes posture and He prays. 
even as he spread over the widow of Zarephath's son in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 17, using the power of God to perform all other manner of what we would term miracles, as I've already indicated, he goes back to the source. He goes to prayer. What can he do other than to take posture here and to ask that God be faithful to do what he has committed himself to doing, what is per his word? And so he engages in the only ordained means that there is to bring these things to pass with regard to men, and that is, he prays. He calls for the operation of God's power to be faithful to his promise. He's getting himself out of the way. And that's not easy. There's a great aversion, is there not, to remove the self and to cede entirely to God, to yield to Him. Jesus says in Mark 8.34 and in Luke 9.23 that if anyone would follow Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and, and follow Me. This would be an example of that. He's getting himself out of the way and he's going to God and he's calling upon Him and thereby demonstrating that if the people of God are going to experience the benefits of the promises that God have made, they must honor Him by anticipating that indeed they will come to pass. And how do we express that? We express that by asking God, kneeling. There is a connection, you see, between the practice of prayer and the benefits of grace and the continuance of life itself. We can think of it as the the lifeline to God, His communicatively ordained way of entreating Him. Lest we fall victim to our sin and our own foolishness as He again applies His grace as we come to Him through His appointed, appointed mediator who for us is Jesus. There is this inextricable link between prayer and life itself. And Elijah knows that. He knows it better than most. And to cry out itself, that very act is an expression of his need for God that he avails himself of by prayer. I'm going to tell you something that's hard along these lines. Uh, there was a very well-known scholarly pastor on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland who in January of 2017, at the age of 54, after many years of pastoring and teaching and writing, it surfaced that he had been involved in up to seven extramarital affairs. Dr. Ian Campbell. Now, not a liberal, not somebody we can poke fun. I mean, this is one of our guys, solid Westminsterian, committed to the word and inerrancy. He hanged himself because he thought he had no way out in the face of his sin. And a series of emails prior to his death kind of have served as suicide notes, if you will. And when I came across one of them, the hair stood up on my arms when I read this man say, I have preached for so long without praying. 
that he had functioned in his own power. And God had used it. And people had been blessed. But Satan had capitalized upon that such that he felt when his sins were exposed and those things into which he had fallen, that there was no way out. That's, that's the importance of prayer. Without it, you, you lose your connection to God and you're susceptible to death. That's how important it is. That's why Elijah is down with his face between his knees. And so ought we to be. Because he is the vine and we are the branches. And if we do not abide in him, we find very destructively that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so Elijah here expresses our great need. We must have the power of our God and we must call that down through the mechanism that He has ordained. Lest we meet with our own demise. Now secondly, we have the petition of Elijah and its pertinence in participation. Its pertinence in participation. By this I mean very simply that our act of prayer is highly uh, germane to the process of the release of God's blessing. We're, we're struck by how sure he is about the rain coming, so much so that he can dismiss the king to dinner. But Elijah knows the storm is coming, that God is going to rend the heavens. And he, he knows that with such surety. And the question then arises, well, if you know that, why pray? Uh, don't you, particularly as a Presbyterian, uh, find yourself often in prayerlessness because you think, well, it's ordained, it's going to happen, nothing I can do can change that, my prayers don't change that, so why pray? That's the worst thing you can conclude. And I think that's what a lot of people on the front lines of ministry do. You get so tired, there are so many pressures on you, you feel so behind, and you forget about praying and you go to work. And you're not like Luther who claimed that he was too busy not to pray, which is why he prayed between two and three hours every morning. Because he realized, as the saints down through the years have, that without prayer, nothing really happens. God doesn't need our prayers, but He's asked for them. He's called for them. And every blessing that He ever bestows is the result of someone having called that down for the benefit of the recipient. Think about that. Nothing happens without the engagement in this process. Jesus is there, ever living to intercede for His own, to, to call down, to, as Dr. Douglas Kelly says, to pray down the blessings of God. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said that prayer is the key that unlocks God's treasures of mercy. There's no way around that. This is that process in which he takes great pleasure as his children come to him as we fumble and stumble to express ourselves and as the Lord Jesus takes it and purifies it at the throne of grace to perfectly submit to God those desires deep within our hearts. And he's pleased to bless us as we ask for those things that are in accord with His good and perfect and acceptable will. James said, if you lack wisdom, to ask of it, for God gives in liberality and without reproach, but to ask in 
faith. Because not to do so is to ask as the double-minded man who is tossed about to and fro like the wave on the sea. God is honored when we come and ask and in our hearts believe as Elijah is here. He's sure this is going to happen. There's no doubt. That's why he comes and he sees his participation in the process as something pertinent to the overall blessing that flows from the promise. I love the way God makes this clear to His people in exile in Ezekiel chapter 36, that great chapter preceding the chapter of the valley of the, of the dry bones. And He, in verse 26, the prophet, the Lord through the prophet says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and and give you a heart of flesh. Most of us have that memorized, that great picture of regeneration. And Yahweh goes on to say what He will do. He will put His Spirit within His people. He will cause them to walk in His statutes, to keep His judgments and to do them. I will deliver you, verse 29 of Ezekiel 36, from all your uncleanness. And what's interesting when He's telling them what He's going to do is they will return to the land from exile At the end of that chapter, he says in verse 38, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. He's still about the work of proving that He is the Lord. The ruined cities, those areas ruined and laid desolate, will be filled with flocks of men. Now that's flocks is sheep language, right? So picture a bunch of sheep. Think of God saying He's going to cause a population boom back at home. There's going to be a lot of people. But notice what He says preceding that in verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of Me to do this for them. I'm going to do this great thing. I'm going to let them Ask me. That's that's the call to prayer. That's the summon to prayer. And again, all throughout Scripture, this is what we see. We have the promises of God and the promises of God somehow, by someone somewhere, prayed down. The promises and the praying down. It isn't happenstance, you see, that the next to the last verse in all of Scripture juxtaposes these two glorious concepts so that we'll leave our reading of the Bible through with these two glorious twin realities in tandem. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And so John in witness responds on behalf of the people, Amen, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm coming quickly. Even so, make it so, Lord. Come quickly. Do you see the whole of redemptive history is that? It's Jesus from all eternity past as the One who has worked our salvation. Say, I'm coming back. And what is our prayers? What's the cry of your heart in every way? Come on, Lord. Jesus, I'm coming back. Come on, Lord. I'm coming back. Come on, Lord. Every time you pray, you're asking for that. That's what counts, ultimately. And our God lets us ask. Don't you see the pertinence of the participation in the process? Well, thirdly, 
We have the petition of Elijah and its concealment of process. Participation is pertinent, but that doesn't mean that the process or the means or the circumstances by which and through which God answers the prayer are going to be easy. It seems that praying for food to abound for a widow and her son was rather simple. Uh, getting over a, a dead boy and asking the Lord to rise, uh, raise him from the dead and bring him back to life and, and that just happening rather quickly seemed rather easy. But, but this, this seems more hard, doesn't it? He sends the servant to go and to, to look at the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. Uh, that's the bummer line. That's the most discouraging part of this whole passage. Right? Think about that. Think about this one who's fired up. He knows that prayer is germane to the process. And the servant went and on the seventh time came and gave the report about the sky being black and the wind and there was heavy rain coming. And so that means that six times he returned to the praying Elijah and said, there's nothing. You ever felt that way? I mean, that had to be discouraging. You're, you're, you're praying your heart out and the servant's coming back and saying, nothing yet. Nothing yet. That's the concealment of process. We don't know how God will answer We know, as Oliver Cromwell's chaplain Thomas Manton said, God loves to give way to human praying, to be ushered into compliance with His people's righteous desires that are agreeable to His will, yet we cannot mark any consistency in His manner of doing so. Sometimes prayer is delightfully easy, and sometimes it is painstaking work that requires incomparable degrees of patience that perhaps you have not applied to any other area of your life. It is work. And we wonder why it is that way, but it is our great privilege. And we are helped, I think, by the words of John Gerardot, the great Southern Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, who once said this, that God may, and I quote, for a time suffer His people, for wise purposes, to undergo apparent defeat and to be exposed to a tempest of opprobrium, oppression, or scorn. There is nothing. In these cases, it is our duty to sustain ourselves by the consideration that God does His will and that the judge of all the earth will do right. Hold, Christian brother, do not despair because your prayers for certain blessings have for a time been unanswered. Where is your faith? Where is your allegiance to your almighty, all-wise, all-merciful sovereign? Collect yourself. Put on the panoply of God. Look up. God, your Redeemer and Deliverer reigns. He sits on yonder throne and suns and systems of light are but the sparkling dust beneath His feet. Doesn't that give you a high view of God? Thousands of shining seraphs minister before Him. Infinite empire is within His grasp. His eye is upon His afflicted people. See, He comes riding upon the wings of the whirlwind, wielding His glittering sword, bathed in the radiance of heaven, driving His foes like chaff before His face, and hastening to the succor of His saints with resources of boundless power and illimitable grace. 
Do you think of your God that way? Does that cause you to hang in there in prayer that He's on yonder throne with suns and systems of light as but the sparkling dust beneath His feet? No wonder the hymnist wrote, Thou art coming to a King. Large petitions with Thee bring. For His power and His grace are such that one can never ask too much. See, it takes a big view of God and a certainty that He is a promise-keeping God to persist in prayer. But what He gives us here is a picture of Ephesians 6.18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We don't know how, we don't know when, but ours is to pray always and with all perseverance, knowing that God will be faithful. You know, you think of that concept of the bigness of God, and so often we're not grateful or we miss things in His good providence because we don't maintain this high view of Him as the one who has as His very footstool His glorious creation. And that leads to my fourth point, the petition of Elijah and its liberality of provision. We're told in verse 45 that a heavy rain comes. After the report, the seventh time by the servant, uh, the servant is urged by Elijah to get up and go prepare the chariot and move on out. You don't want to get caught in a heavy rainstorm. You want to be able to move. And the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. Not a drizzle, not a little pour, but but a real, as they say in Texas, gully washer. Everything came down. And Israel's idolatry had cost her these blessings, and God had to prove Himself. And and there's life hanging in the balance when one is without water supply. But God comes through. And in so doing, He shows that He's not only the God in the big things, but the God in the small things. He can send down fire and consume, and He can provide daily bread. He can execute false prophets and He can turn the water on again. You see, and you don't appreciate the ordinary until you see how it is underpinned by the same power that gives us the extraordinary. And until we do, we really aren't thankful for the fact that we can wake up in the morning and walk and eat our breakfast. But that's that's part of the liberality of Elijah's God and our God's provision. But then finally, I want to note in that second main theme that I identified at the outset, this idea of the prophet petitioning and the petition of Elijah, all the work that he does to not only see that the people of God again, experience the faithfulness of God and how it is that He blesses His people. But He says to them, the message in essence is in this final half of verse 45 and in verse 46, that I will pursue on behalf of the people the appeal that God makes. 
that He extends out of His grace and that He desires preceptively to have accepted by even those vilest defenders of whom we sung just a few moments ago. The prophet's pursuit of the appeal of God to be answered. Ahab rides away and he goes to Jezreel. Jezreel is what we might call his summer home. His main palace is in Samaria, but Jezreel is his Moro Laga. And he's off to there. Spend a little while there in the second home. Then the hand of the Lord, verse 46, comes upon Elijah and he girded up his loins. That is, he tucked the skirts of his robe into his belt, got in a position and took care of his garments such that he could run. And he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of that home. Now, uh, some want to tinker with this and say this is symbolic. didn't really happen. Others believe that this is a literal account, but by running, uh, this is just Elijah on behalf of the victorious God of all gods uh, proceeding through the tradition of what a victorious king does. And I want to suggest to you that this is probably the most important part of the passage. We need to understand, given what we concluded two weeks ago, about the fact that if the prophet isn't present, the Word of God isn't present. If the prophet's missing, the people are without the Word. If the vision's gone, you perish. If the revelation isn't there, you die. What this is, beloved, is the faithful prophet of God running before the king as he is riding to his second home in order that that king, that sinful king, might even still have the Word of God before him. The Word of God that says, our God is faithful and He has been faithful to keep His promises for a reason that He might be reconciled to the likes of the worst. Now, now picture this. This is amazing. It's raining. It's about 18 miles from where they are up to this summer home, as I'm calling it. Picture Elijah. I, I hope he ran track when he was in high school in a robe running in the rain to that extent so that the grace of God might be extended to one whom as far as we know will never receive it before he's killed in a battle with Sirius. But that's not our issue. Our issue is to focus at our great and gracious God who's extending it. Who's saying, as the, the prophet Isaiah records, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And He will bless him. He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. That's what we need to see. It's not ours to analyze why people aren't receiving it or to try to figure out who it's for. It's for all of us. Why? Because it found out us. If we are in the greater Elijah today, it's because that Word consistently and at all costs placed Himself before us and said, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, come to Me and I will give you rest. And so that's the, the message that's here, that our God is, 
is faithful. And we so often think we're beyond certain sins. I'm sure David never thought he would commit adultery and arrange the murder of the husband of the woman with whom he'd done it. I'm sure Dr. Ian Campbell never in a million years thought he would hang himself. But it's so easy, is it not, to just sort of say, Ahab's be damned. Because we don't like the unrighteous. Forgetting that that's who we are. And we're only different because the Word went on before us. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I I cited Luke chapter 4, basically in the reference to Jesus' words as the drought of which we're reading here, actually having extended three years and six months. But he's there in the synagogue with a group of those who are not pleased by much of what he says. And he cites Elijah's work going to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to the woman who was a widow being used of God there. And he says, Many lepers were in Israel, verse 27 of Luke 4, in the time of Elisha the prophet, that's Elijah's successor, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So he's telling them that there are Gentiles, perish the thought, that are coming under the benefit of God. So all those, verse 28 of Luke 4 says in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with rage. And... Yes, Ahab is in in the covenant, but that's what we do, isn't it? We look at those and we're filled with rage. How dare God be kind to them? But why was He kind to you? It's perhaps best summed up by the Scottish divine John Brown of Haddington in the 18th century. Dr. Ralph Davis in his commentary on 1 Kings quotes John Brown of Haddington when he said, Oh, to have my heart stirred and set in an eternal home of love to that dear Son of God of whom I think I can say He loved me and gave Himself for me. And I am sure in point of worthlessness He might as well have loved Beelzebub Himself. If you are here this day and you do not have faith in the greater Elijah, he runs before you and you need to embrace him by grace through faith. And if you are his and you have that vital union with him of which we spoke last week, we need to recognize that the why and the what and the how of your salvation is all wrapped up in the glorious reality that this God is pleased to keep his promises and to for such a long extended period of times put the vast array of the riches of all of those promises kept out before the swine of the earth and call you in. And if you are His, it is because He has done so and He is the one who has set an eternal, you in an eternal home of love to Christ. And so may we be encouraged by that this week as we see that God is faithful. And as we come and ask Him to release the blessings that He has in store for us, He he does so. 
he does so. And the pains and injuries of life's game end one day. And the ultimate fruit of his promise kept is that all things are made new. Amen.